we're continuing in our series, Reclaim. And so in this series, we've been going through the first few chapters of Revelation. And the series title, Reclaim, what that's all about is reclaiming parts of our relationship with Jesus Christ where areas of our of our relationship, areas of our spirituality, areas of our connection with God has felt dry or has felt disconnected somehow. And through this series, we wanted to see Jesus' address that he gives to all seven of the churches to let us know and gives us an insight into some of the dangers that we can come alongside in in our relationship with Jesus where we find out that why am I not experiencing Jesus? Why am I not experiencing God the way that I think I should be? And we look at this picture and we see what the churches were in danger of, of why they were slowly falling away, even though they were doing all the right things and it looked like they were striving hard, why it felt like for them that they, are, they were disconnecting from their relationship with Jesus. What we see here, the thing that uh, John points out is he wants to make sure that we all get this, that a revelation, he calls it an apocalypse, but a revelation with Jesus Christ, it changes everything. It changes our mindset from this spirituality, this religiosity, this way of following Jesus where the mindset pattern is, I know what I ought to do. You know, I know what I ought to do because that's what the Bible says. I know this is the right thing that I need to do. It changes it from that kind of approach to experiencing Jesus because that's really dry to an approach where, wow, I met Jesus. I was in God's presence. And being in God's presence, it changes everything. I believe this apocalypse, this revelation is essential for each and every one of us today. It's that experience that helps us to really get what this is all about. For whatever reason, uh, my wife, she began, she's in here right now, right? So I'm talking about her, but I've gave her a warning <laughs> that I would be talking about her. For whatever reason, over the past, I think, month or so, my wife has really been getting into BTS. You guys know who BTS is? The Korean sensation pop, uh, pop song. Yeah, there's a thumbs up for my wife. Yeah, so she's been getting into D, uh, BTS and uh, she's been reading up on all their documentaries, watching every YouTube thing that's about them and their interviews and everything um, that they've been going through from the beginning of their career. How much work was put in into them becoming who they were today. And that just inspired her and challenged her. And then she finally was able to say to my daughter, saying, now I understand why my daughter is so into BTS, right? As she's been learning their music, listening to their lyrics and saying, it makes sense why my daughter's always upstairs, you know, watching them, watching their YouTubes, trying to learn their dance and everything like that. And even with some of these older women like my, like my wife in their mid-40s, well, my wife, sorry, she's in her 30s, right? But for most other women who are in their 40s, you know, some of the comments that my, uh, that my daughter made is she said, Dad, look at all these comments from these videos that they gave, right? 
And a lot of these comments were from 40-year-old women, right? And these older 40-year-old women would be commenting on their pages like crazy, saying things like this. It was because of BTS, I was able to get through the pandemic. And their reasoning behind that was this, is that they said in the pandemic when we were locked down and it was like a joyless space, they said by watching their music videos, listening to their lyrics, and then dancing alongside of them, it said it gave them new energy, fresh energy, and it helped them remain joyful despite the pandemic and the isolation that the pandemic brought. You know, although I hear the music playing in my household now 24-7, right, not just from the stereo version of my wife and then my daughter, it just keeps going. I see them dancing all the time. You know, the, some of the things that my, my wife and my daughter can't understand about me is they say, Dad, how can you not like BTS? How can you not enjoy this music? And I think it's because of one thing. And that one thing for me is because I didn't experience BTS. I didn't invest in watching them and, and seeing how they grew and seeing that kind of insight that they had. I noticed that an experience or that kind of revelation, to be in that presence, it changes everything. And sometimes when I look at my own relationship with Christ, and I hear about other people's journeys and where they are at and what they're going through, it seems in that same way, you know, when we are in that experience, when we are invested in it and we're walking along through it, our hearts are invested, our minds are invested, and it changes us. Sometimes in our relationship with Christ, the reason why he feels so disconnected, the reason why he feels so far away is because it's like me towards BTS. I hear about them, right? From afar, I hear their music, right? I get it, and I would agree their music is inspirational, but I never really delved into it like they have. And sometimes in our relationship with Christ, I think that might be the missing piece that some of us have. From afar, we listen to music, wor uh, uh, worship music, just like what we did this morning, right? We, we hear it, I know it, I hear the lyrics, but our hearts or our minds, our bodies may not be engaged. Um, we hear sermons and, and we hear other people doing all these great things. We hear autobiographies of other famous Christians and, and their love for Jesus, but our own hearts are not engaged. And when that happens, although we have a, minds, a mental appreciation or respect for what they are doing, it's not an experiential one. It's not enough to get us excited. It's not enough to make us really believe this changes everything. This is why this Reclaim series and this revelation that God gives to each of the churches was for this reason, so that his church, his people, would not just have an intellectual appreciation, would not just have a moral obligation, but they would have a true experience of the living God. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to begin at verse 7 and go to, uh, and go to 13. So Revelation chapter 3, uh, verse 7 to 13, I'll be reading from the NIV. You can follow along. It reads this. 
To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for giving us this opportunity to be in your word. I pray today, just as you spoke your revelation, for some of us here, if there is a part of this that we need to hear, if there is a part of this where the heavens need to be open, where you come and you reside with us, we feel like your word, it pierces in into every barrier that is in our life and releases, Lord, your spirit to encounter us, releases your power to be with us. I pray that wherever we are at, whatever space that we are worshiping here or listening to you, will you meet with us, Lord? Will we have an encounter with you? Will our hearts and our minds, Father, be changed by you? May we sense your spirit with each one of us. I thank you, Father. Lead us today. May we have ears to hear, eyes to see, and may we follow through. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so once again, what we see in each one of the addresses that Jesus gave to the previous five churches, now the sixth, and next week we'll go through the last one, the seventh church, Jesus always introduced himself very specifically to each one. He did not give a generalized characteristic of who he was to each person saying, I am the sovereign one, the sovereign Lord of all the universe. That's what I want you to know. No, he introduced himself very specifically that was unique to their situation. In that same way, we're reminded that whenever Jesus gives us, each one of us, a revelation, if we are listening he gives to each one of us a specific revelation of who he is that we need to hear, that makes sense in our context, in a way that we can respond to him. This why, brothers and sisters, is so important that we continually try to engage in our relationship with Jesus Christ, invest in that rather than hearing from other people, rather than knowing from uh, social media or what other people have to say. It has to be us that does the investment. 
And as we do, we get our specific particular revelation that we need to spur us on, to invigorate us, to make us believe once again, this is true. The first thing that Jesus affirms is he says, these are the words of him who are, and look at the words that he uses for Philadelphia, who are holy and true. This is the words of him who is holy and true. What does Jesus mean by this? Well, in the Old Testament, whenever the word holy was used, it could only be used in connection with God. It could not be used in connection with any other thing. So holy could only be associated with God, with Yahweh. And then when he says true, this trueness was only associated with God as well. When we look at true, in the Hebrew word, true means trustworthy. These are the words of him who is true, or in other words, trustworthy, worthy of our trust. In the Greek, it actually means real. So he just he's not saying that this worthy of our trust God is the very and most real thing there is in our lives. You know, I think these are the words that the, uh, the church in Philadelphia need to hear because it felt like cultural things was more real than God. It felt like certain securities like money or relationships was more trustworthy than God. And what God is trying to point out to the people of Philadelphia is he's saying, I want you to know these are the words of him who is holy and true. These words were of particular importance to the church in Philadelphia because they were kicked out of the synagogue by the Jewish rulers. And the reason why they were kicked out of the synagogue or the church is because they were declaring Jesus Christ to be holy and true. And for the Jewish synagogue leaders, they're saying only God is that and Jesus is not God, right? And we control it. We're the ones that open the door to people who come into this faith and we're the ones that close it. Right? So when Jesus said, I am the, these are the words of him who is holy and true, he was encouraging them. He was letting them know, I know what you've been going through. I know it felt like you've been kicked out of the synagogue or out of the church, right? Because you believe in me. And he says, I want you to know this me that they are talking about, I'm speaking to you. But they're not hearing from me. He was letting them know, you're getting it and you're going to get it from me. Brothers and sisters, whatever hurts that we have from our previous church, whatever things that other leaders or other people may have said that kind of like pushed us out, the encouragement that we get here is no matter how much we felt like the doors of church have been shut to us because of our past uh, bad experience and things like this, Jesus says, that doesn't prevent me from speaking to you. Just because those leaders or those experiences may have shut the door, I haven't. And he says, these are the words of the one who is holy and true. I am the God who is trustworthy and I'm more real than anything else in your life. And then he also says this, I also hold the key of David. Now, this was an important illustration. It was an important metaphor that he was using. And let me explain why. But before I do, I'm going to date myself a little bit and mention a movie that I'm pretty sure most of you 
haven't watched because you're too young, right? But in my earlier days, when I was in my 20s, right, this movie was really popular. But have, have any of you, by thumbs up, have any of you heard the movie National Treasure? Anyone by any chance heard that movie before? All right, me and Jen, same generation. Right? <laughs> All right, Sean, Tony. Oh, okay, good. So, so some of you guys have, good. So in that movie, National Treasure, it's about a historian archaeologist who inherits a map from his family. And this map leads to a national treasure. But these, these types of movies, they all kind of follow the same plot. The plot is this. Here's this mythical map, right, that we don't know for sure if it's really real or if it's just a myth that people have created to throw people's lives, you know, in spiraling uh, pursuits that lead nowhere. But that's really the premise of the first part of the movie. He invests, the archaeologist or historian invests everything that he has in into following this map, following every clue that leads to another clue, then leads to another clue, and it keeps feeling like it leads to dead ends. And then all of that investment, it appears to everyone else around them, you are just wasting your time, right? It's just rabbit trails that you're going. This is not real. It's not worth that investment. It's not worth that pursuit. Stop it because every time you feel like you're going closer, you never see real results. And so to most observers, these clues or these maps and the buildings that they look at, because they are so old, they look at that and go, what possibly could be of value in these kind of spaces? And at times when we look at our own Christian life, it feels the same way too. When we look at the Bible, it feels so ancient, right? When we try to follow in its ways, it feels so countercultural, not with our times, so old or passe and not current with what culture is doing. And people look at us because we struggle hard and we try our best. And at the end of it, rather than having joy or this treasure that comes out, right? A lot of Christians are known to be like this, like, you know, really like anal, angry people all the time just walking through life and just saying, why are you so angry all the time? Or why are you so grumpy? Or why are you so, you know, straight with all these kind of things? You are no joy person, right? Or you're always like, this is the line. I must not cross it. But you're not happy about it. And people ask, why do you keep pursuing things that don't seem to have that kind of treasure, that kind of proof that everyone else could see is actually worth the sacrifice and the hardships that you're going through. And as we know, by the end of the movie that we see in National Treasure, they finally find it, right? As they find the treasure, it literally becomes not just life-changing for them, but life-changing for the people and the world around them as well. See, in this passage, when Jesus tells the church in Philadelphia, I hold the key of David, he is telling them that he himself is that key. In other words, he himself is that map that leads to the treasure. This image actually came from Isaiah chapter 20. And in Isaiah chapter 20, Eliakim, he was a steward of the, Kim, of the king Hilkiah. These are difficult words to pronounce, but he, Eliakim was the steward of the king Hilkiah. And what he was entrusted with was this key that would open or shut the doors of the house of David. House of David was like 
a fortress or a city, right? And so this key would open the doors for people to come in. It would shut the doors, uh, preventing people from coming in. And so Isaiah later mentions that this house of David is a way of describing the kingdom of God and all of the riches, all the treasures that are associated with it. Thus, Jesus Christ is like this Eliakim, entrusted to open all of the riches, all of the treasures, all of the glory of the kingdom of God, what that represents, what that is to the rest of us. And the reason why he is the key is because as he introduces himself earlier, he is the resurrected one. He is the one that has died and rose again to become that gateway for each and every one of us. This was really a tremendous encouragement for the Church of Philadelphia because they really felt that they were attacked on all sides by their family members, by their coworkers, by people around them, by saying, you're chasing after a myth, right? You're working so hard. You're holding on to what is true. That's what Jesus says in this passage. I commend you for holding on to my name. When everyone else is saying, why are you doing that, right? You're the only one that's suffering because of it. You're losing your businesses because of it. And because of the steadfastness, by holding to what is true and holy, not only are you being, shutting, being shut out of the temple of God and out of that community, but also everyone else is shutting you out as well. From business relationships, from having um, uh, marriage proposals, they felt like they're being shut out everywhere. And Jesus says to them, don't worry. I am really the holy and true one. I'm not a myth. I'm not a waste of your time. I'm not just this thing that may not exist. He says, I'm the most truest and the most trustworthy thing, person, anything that you could hold in your life. Look at the way that Jesus describes their reward in verse 12. Once you do this and you hold to this, he says this, to him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will you leave it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on him my new name. See, in this short passage, as cryptic as it might sound, there are two things that are helpful to know about the city of Philadelphia to better appreciate why Jesus worded his words in this kind of way. The first one was this. It was customary to recognize anyone who brought honor to the city of Philadelphia um, to recognize them by erecting a pillar in any one of the temples that was in the city of Philadelphia to erect a, temp, uh, to erect a pillar and to inscribe that person's name, right? Sounds familiar, right? These days, we call it getting the keys to a city, right? And that key is not literally a key that opens every door in the city, right? But it's a key that's symbolic that you've been an honorary uh, member that's brought life to our community, you know, this kind of honor, it's recognized, you know, by the city of Philadelphia. And every time people will go into the temple and see this pillar erected and their name on it, there would be the sense of pride, right? The sense of awesomeness. And that's why Jesus talks about here. 
I don't know about for, for some of you, but sometimes we pursue our certain accolades or our certain rewards by the kind of uh, um, acknowledgement, honor that we get in our schools, our businesses, wherever it may be. I myself, I'm not a person who stands out in, in any regard. And I'm a very, very average person who tries to work hard. But one of the things that I most, I became most excited about is in my high school days. And yes, bear with my self-boasting for just one second because there's no one else that can do it too. But in high school, when I was in grade 10, um, I created the men's gymnastics club because it was only women <laughs> at that time and no guys wanted to be part of gymnastics. Every guy wanted to go into football. But here was one guy, I asked the office, can I create a men's gymnastics? I'm really interested in it, I wanna do it. And they said, okay, but you need more than one person, right? And you need to find a coach and you need all these other things. I went, all right, let me try to find one. And so eventually, uh, before, the, um, before the season started, I was able to recruit six other guys to join me in creating this men's gymnastics. But it was hard because at first, I was just going by myself, taking, trying to take out the equipment by myself in the same time that the girls were having their practice. And so all the guys were looking at me saying, this guy just wants to see girls in their gymnastics outfit. That's why he's going there by himself. And I was so embarrassed. I said, That's not true. I really want to do gymnastics, right? And eventually six other guys joined. And by the end of it, at the end, when I finally reached grade 12, our team went to OFSA. OFSA is, the, I guess, the highest high school level of uh, sports. I went to OFSA. Our team won gold. And as a result of that gold, we had our picture taken as our team. Our, our picture was put up on the wall of fame in our, in our school. It's still there today, right? And then we were called to City Hall where the mayor gave us each a special certificate um, recognizing the honor that we brought to our city of St. Catharines, right? So as I saying, you brought a great pride to our city of St. Catharines by winning OFSA men's gymnastics. And I was so happy about that. And I found that every time I have a chance and I hear people come from St. Catharines, I ask them, hey, what school did you go to? Oh, you went to Sir Winston? Go to the Wall of Fame and you'll see me there. And I always see their reaction because I'm the only one that cares about it. No one else cares, right? And what they would say is, why, why would we do that? <laughs> why would we want to see an old guy? <laughs> right on on this wall like man you look so lame and what's with your hair right <laughs> or what's with your clothes right because that's what i said whenever i saw the wall of fame of older people I was like what's with their hair what's with their clothes and i realized all of these accomplishments i'm the only one that really cares about it you know no one cares more about my accolades or the honor that i received except me and I would go out of my way to try to help other people care, right, about what I felt like was my honor, my joy, my pride. But they don't. This is why in this passage, when he says, you know how people erect pillars in temples and inscribe their name? No one's looking for your name. They're all looking for their own name. No one really cares about what you've done. They only care about what they've done. But Jesus here says, I will give you a name where inscribed in it is not your name, but inscribed in it is mine. Now, why is that so important? 
The reason why that's so important is if you recognize, if you've ever received honors or rewards or these kind of certificates, it fills you for a certain small season. It makes you happy, right, that your name's on the wall, right, or you get into the newspaper or you get this promotion from work. It brings you that zip and it brings you that pride and it becomes part of your CV. But later, you find it's dry. It ran out of batteries. It doesn't give you that same joy anymore. It's gone. You have to look for the next thing. This is why Jesus says, for that person, I will erect you in my temple, he says. And not only will I erect you in my temple, I will ascribe my name on you. You will bear my name. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this. You know that emptiness we feel whenever we feel like our life is insignificant? That's why we pursue certain things. We pursue relationships. We pursue whatever. He says, I will fill you. Like some part of our life that longs for something more, Jesus says, I'm the one that fills that. And for the church in Philadelphia, the people that who were there, they wanted to be known for something. They wanted to be filled by something. They always felt like they were the ones that are shut out. They're the ones that are ignored. They're the ones that have no purpose in that city. And Jesus says, yes, you do. But the thing is, you're looking for your purpose on external things. But I will fill it internally. Brothers and sisters, for each one of us, that's what God wants to do. He wants to infill us with his spirit he wants us to feel every day that our significance is beyond what we make of our life our significance it comes from God where he says you are meaningful you are significant the second thing that is helpful to know about the city of Philadelphia is this comment that Jesus makes. And he says, never again will you leave it. And the reason why he says that, never again will you leave it, uh, what he was talking about was the constant threat that the uh, city of Philadelphia was in. It was actually built on a volcano. And that made their soil very fertile. That's why they stayed there, is because the, fur, uh, the soil was very fertile. But whenever there were rumblings of a potential eruption, you know, those pre-quake kind of things, but it doesn't really result in a, a volcano um, or eruption, there were a lot of these pre-quakes and these earthquakes that would happen. And what would cause the people of the city to do is all of them would evacuate. They would all have to leave the city and spend some time outside of it, and then they would return. And they keep on doing this. Like, there was a time of instability. They would leave. They would uh, settle somewhere else, and they would come back. And what Jesus is mentioning is, I know how unsettling your life is, moving always from place to place, always trying to get some sort of security. In that same way for the people of Philadelphia and what we experience, we're always unsettled. We look for the next job and we settle there. But the thing is, something quakes underneath us. Our foundation gives way because of bad relationships at work or bad whatever that's happening or uh, unfulfilling expectations. And it keeps quaking. And then we leave it and we look for another ground or another space that makes us feel more secure. And Jesus says, your security will not be found in these external variables. He says, never again will you leave the city of God. In other words, he's saying your identity, who you are, what you pursue will be so solid that every time you live, you're not leaving anything. You're, you're living by confidence 
You're living by purpose. And you keep on living in this manner. Jesus tells them that this new city of God is an eternally stable one, filled with not only spiritual, but also physical fertility. Right? It's a fertile space. Now, this brings us to our main part that Jesus wants to make clear to the church in Philadelphia, and I want to end with this. Look at verse 8. This is the only imperative, this is the only command word that Jesus uses in this passage. In other versions, it says, look, and it's a command. Look, open your eyes, see it. In the NIV, it's see. See, I've done this. But it's hard for us to understand that strength of the imperative in our English grammar. But in the Greek, it's very strong. It's like this see or look, get this, open your eyes, keep staring at it until you get it. That's the kind of emphasis that Jesus gives here. He says, look, I have opened the door wide for people to see. See, it allows many others, like synagogue rulers who have shut the door, our own faith attributes as we've grown up and we've lived a dead faith or a dry faith. He's saying, look, I've opened the doors for you to now see what my relationship with me is all about. Look, I've opened the door so you can see me and pursue me and to see the treasure that I bring and unfold in your life. He says, look, so that you may see what following after me is really about. He says, look at this, not at these other things that you've been doing. He says, look at me. You know, during the pandemic, as much as the pandemic has been difficult on most of us, I feel the pandemic has been another opportunity for the church, for its doors that we have shut, the, the, the framework of church that we have created for ourselves and that we've kind of shut it to everything else, right? Saying church is just about Sunday. Church is just about this worship program that we do. Church is just about this. And we, and we have the certain paradigm of church. And the pandemic has helped us to open that shut door, to open that closed off paradigm, that limiting space, and, and Jesus saying, look, this is where your relationship with Jesus Christ is at. This is where your relationship with Jesus Christ should be. Brothers and sisters, the pandemic has caused an earthquake for our church, for members of our church, for each one of us to really see where are we in our relationship with Christ? Is it a dead one? Something that just exists for the purpose of existing? Or is it one that's given by revelation, by direction, by purpose, by infilling? As we invest in it more, we see that it is life-giving. It's not a pursuit that leads to myths or dead ends. But we pursue this because every step of the way, God continually infills us with his Holy Spirit, gives us strength to accomplish what he has set us out to do. And every time we're filled by that Spirit and we begin to act by that filling of the Spirit, because Jesus said, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, by my strength, I'll do it. Pastor Jen shared about this, right? By my Spirit, Right? And as we walk in that spirit, we continually experience 
Jesus Christ, we become convinced he really is the true and holy one, the trustworthy real being that changes everything. You know, the church in Philadelphia, look at Jesus describes them. He says, I know that you feel like you are those of little strength. That's how they view themselves. We're not like Pergamum. Remember Pergamum? We're highly intellectual. They had the best library, right? The high, uh, the high uh, academic elites that were there. They said, we're not like Pergamum. They were saying, we're not like Sardis. Remember, Sardis was the elite wealth, right? They could put money into anything and build it. Philadelphia, they're like, we don't have anything. We're not gifted with anything, right? We're just a port city, and everyone just happens to come into our city, right, because we're by the port. And he says, I know that you feel like you're of little strength, and you don't really mean anything. You're like a wayward place where everyone just comes and then leaves, right? But you're not really significant. Everyone just comes to you, but then goes somewhere else. You're not the real destination. I know you feel like that. But look what he says. For the church in Philadelphia, in the city of Philadelphia, it was known as a Hellenizing place. I know it's a difficult word. Let me say it again. Hellenizing place, right? So Hellenistic means like to promote like Greek things, right? And Hellenizing place, it, it, it sounds like hell, but it's not, right? But it, it actually meant to promote Greek culture. So as these poor people, merchants would come into the city, they would get exposed to Greek culture. And even though they went to different destinations, they would have a taste of it. And eventually, people would remember that Greek culture. Right? Kind of like BTS. You experience Korean culture, right, when, when you see that kind of entertainment. That same way Jesus says, as people come through you, they would experience Christ's culture. He says, you are significant. You are not just average. You're not people of little strength. You are influencers. This is why, brothers and sisters, you know, we're starting a new, oh, we've started it, but we're really going to push it, these open house Sundays. It seems small. It seems like it's not going to make too much of a difference. But these are the places where God opens the door of the church. And he challenges us to see, does God belong in my home? Does he belong in my workplace? Does he belong among my world friends? And it challenges us to really think about that. And he says, I've opened the door. And he says, look, look at it. See it. See what I'm doing. Brothers and sisters, as we continue with our Open House Sundays and we learn how to invite God into our spaces, may we have eyes that see, ears that hear, and a heart that is willing to invest and to experience God as he leads us so that we may really experience the power of God working through us and the culture of Christ being exposed to all those who come into our spaces as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for blessing us with this time, this space to really see what you are doing, how you're opening up the doors, how you're engaging us. 
And I ask, Father, rather than feeling that we're distant from church, we feel like church is not the same anymore, we feel kind of lethargic in our pursuit after you, open our eyes to see the door that has been opened, to see the work that you are doing and how you're inviting us into it so that we may taste and see that you are good. May you fill us with your spirit so that we may work by the power of your spirit and continually experience you in our everyday. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you both now and forever. Amen.